This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Mola, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Michael Medved is host of The Michael Medved Show, a national radio program devoted to cultural and political analysis. At age 16, he attended Yale University, followed by Yale Law School. After that, he entered the political arena as a speechwriter and campaign consultant. He has been well known to Americans, hosting a show on CNN, co-hosting the program Sneak Previews for 12 years, beginning in 1984. He's the author of best-selling books, including What Really Happened to the Class of 65. At age 26, he wrote the book, and it became a national bestseller. Since then, he has authored 12 additional books, dozens of articles and op-eds, hundreds of film reviews for magazines and newspapers, such as USA Today and the Wall Street Journal. He served as chief film critic for the New York Post for years. His two most recent books, The American Miracle and God's Hand on America, are the topic of our conversation today. Michael, you have been thinking, speaking, and writing now for decades. Uh, one of the most uh, verbal lives, I think it's, it's safe to say, uh, of our times. Uh, you produce best-selling books, uh, massive radio influence, and, uh, and yet I also know you as friend. And I am fascinated by the way you think, and you share in these uh, two new books, especially The American Miracle, Divine Providence, and The Rise of the Republic, and God's Hand on America, Divine Providence in the Modern Era. Uh, this is clearly the culmination of some thinking that has been going on for a long time. First of all, welcome, and uh, tell us about that. Sure. I, again, I um, uh, have, for a, a very long time, as you mentioned, been uh, obsessed with the need for gratitude uh, toward the United States of America and ultimately toward God. I think one of the problems that we have had in this country, and it's something that you write about in The Gathering Storm, is that if gratitude is due, but you don't pay that debt and you don't express that gratitude, then that's uh, one of the worst traits a human being can have. In King Lear, he says, oh, how sharper than a serpent's tooth is ingratitude. And uh, the difficulty here is that so many Americans have forgotten who it is that we're supposed to thank. And it's, it's one of those things where my becoming conservative, having grown up not as a red diaper baby or a, a leftist, but as sort of a standard American Stevensonian liberal, that's where my parents were, may they rest in peace, but uh, moving over to being a very proud Reagan Republican, that corresponded for me with becoming much more religious and religiously involved and understanding that all of these good things that we get to celebrate uh, all the time, even in the midst of a pandemic and national chaos, all of those things deserve and require thankfulness. Uh, not just in a cosmic sphere, but for our own personal happiness. Uh, if, you, um, if you've been blessed, you're either going to feel gratitude or guilt. And right now, the entire American obsession is to try to impose guilt on every single American. Oh, we're the worst country ever. And oh, the whole country is built on exploitation and lies and oppression. And oh, we're so terrible. Uh, that doesn't help people lead better lives. Nor is it true. At, le at least it's not, not true in being uh, the, the main story. And uh, so we, we have a war of stories right now. And uh, we, ha we have open arguments against that kind of gratitude that, uh, as you say, uh, will not help. You uh, carefully distinguish between two ideas. Neither one of them is popular today. And uh, those two ideas are the concept of providence in history, and then American exceptionalism. Now, you don't conflate the two, but uh, both of those two ideas you deal with are uh, decidedly out of step with the, uh, the modern uh, academic culture. Let's put it that way. And they are, but even the modern academic culture, I, I think that what people uh, embrace is a form of American exceptionalism, because America is so exceptional. Anybody who knows world history 
uh, understands what Walter McDougall, who's a fine professor of history at University of Pennsylvania, has written, which is the greatest event of the last 500 years of human history, has been the emergence of the United States of America. It was unforeseeable. It is illogical. No one could have predicted it or analyzed it. Someone looking 500 years ago that the center of civilization would be right here. But here we are. So it's an exceptional development. And you're right. That, that's the idea of American exceptionalism, which most people concede. But the country is so exceptional that you are going to say that uh, it's either exceptionally great or exceptionally guilty. And the entire project of the left right now seems to be saying that all of these things that we enjoy here in the United States and that are, are uniquely uh, beneficent, that all of those things are the product of lying and cheating and stealing and oppression. Uh, America's either the worst country in the world or the best country in the world. And we are so big and so consequential and so different from other countries that uh, it seems to me that you, you really have to choose one or the other. Yeah, the, uh, the argument about America being exceptionally tragic uh, is, uh, is one that is certainly gaining traction. And uh, I think it's a part of even what we see in uh, that recent development of the New York Times where the editorial page editor resigned in the face of younger more radical employees who clearly were demanding his ouster. And uh, and it came down to the fact that it's the old liberalism that thought America needed to be reformed and the new liberalism that believes America needs to be rejected. That rejectionist narrative is now becoming, uh, it's, it's not just in academia anymore. I mean, it's on the streets and it's not just there. Uh, you've got uh, the old liberal class trying to catch up with this uh, rejectionist narrative lest they be well, forced to resign from their positions. It's an amazing thing to see right now in 2020. It is, and I think that talking about America's exceptional status is, is very important. And uh, one of the ways that I think you counter this current narrative of America's unique guilt and horrors and misery is, okay, which country... Uh, which national society, which example should we follow? Uh, where is there a better place to pursue your dreams, uh, to uh, allow people to create a new life for themselves, to choose the path that they want to take? And one of the interesting things here, and, and this is wildly politically incorrect, but I, I, I know it won't discomfort you, Al, is that when you talk about the African diaspora, uh, there were uh, about 12 million people who were kidnapped into slavery and taken really all over the world, including very much to the Islamic world. Of those, 4% came to the United States. In which society have people in the African diaspora uh, fared better than the United States? And the answer is none. Uh, this is a point that a lot of black conservatives make, and I think it's a powerful point. Our colleague Larry Elder makes this right. point, is that if you, you look at the United States and you look at the 45 million African Americans who live here in this country, that by itself would be the 15th largest economy in the world. It would be, <laughs> it would be one of the G20, and, and that progress has been made in spite of uh, 400 years of slavery and in spite of Jim Crow and oppression. And this is one of those things, Al, that I was, I was just thinking of, is, is one of the things that people chant in the BLM movement is uh, say their names, say their names, say their names. And the names are Ahmed Arbery and, of course, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and other people who are the victims of horrible crimes, agreed they were horrible crimes. But why not say the names of the people who have achieved great and beautiful things uh, in, in the United States of America? Uh, even today, and Shelby Steele and Thomas Sowell and, yes, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and people, people who are noted not for victimhood but for profound achievement, which is a, a real legacy of the black past. 
I think there's uh, that, that's an excellent point. I think another issue is that we have lost our theological superstructure for understanding society and a theological vocabulary and uh, controlling concepts such as sin, such that uh, to say that American is exceptional and even exceptional in the best sense, that is to say the land of greatest opportunity, the land of most remarkable influence and, uh, and liberty and freedom. But at the same time, that's not to say America's guiltless, because, you know, America was established in a time when there was enough theological superstructure that people knew that sin affected everything. I mean, if you read the, as, as you've read, I'm, I'm sure, and uh, you cite thoroughly, uh, you know, the Federalist Papers, a part of it is just about how to restrain the evil impulses of opportunistic individuals and to instead assure the survival of this experiment in ordered liberty. Uh, so many of the, the people who are just anti-American in, in this sense uh, somehow seem to hold up the ideal of a guiltless civilization. There is no such thing. No, of course not. And and again, I think it's Madison who said, were men angels, governments would be unnecessary. And... <laughs> <laughs> in other We're words, we don't, we don't have a senator or a Supreme Court for the heavenly beings. That's not needed. Uh, all you need is one supreme ruler. And, and the idea that we live in a fallen world where there should be one supreme human ruler uh, is, is uh, antithetical to the, right. the American creed. This goes back again. Uh, you know, I begin my show... Uh, every day and have for the 25 years that I've been doing my show, and another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. Greatest doesn't mean perfect. Greatest means compared to everything else, and that I know you are, of course, a great devotee, as we all are of Winston Churchill, having been in your library and seen a Churchill collection and bust and everything else. Churchill said that uh, democracy is the worst form of government ever conceived, except for all those other forms of government that have been tried from time to time. Exactly. And he had uh, vast experience, tragically, uh, as he uh, rode astride history uh, with the, uh, the fact that evil experiments in government were all too tragic and costly. There's just too much at stake. Uh, Churchill said in one of his speeches in his second premiership, he said, we can just look at the Bolshevik Revolution. We can look at the rise of Nazi Germany. and We can understand that government is not the playground of politicians. It is where life and death, human good and, and human evil uh, will, uh, will happen or not happen. And so the stakes are really high. And you understand that in these books. I, I appreciate the fact that, that uh, you... You help people to understand what's at stake if events had turned out otherwise. The second idea, the second concept that is woefully out of step, uh, that nonetheless I say is absolutely necessary, that you've made the very theme of these two books, is providence. And uh, so the, the, this is a, an even more audacious claim made of the United States of America. And you've made it now with two books, and I hope others to follow. And that is that this is not merely a nation it's a it's a providential nation. There there is no explanation for the United States as it is now, and many crucial turning points in its history, but for divine providence. No, and that's what's so amazing to me is that was universally conceded, uh, even by American leaders who were not at all conventionally religious, who, by the way, had biblical challenges that they they like to make but jefferson uh who who of course spent a large part of his time with the scissors cutting out the parts of the bible both old and new testament that he didn't like uh jefferson nonetheless is one of those people who recognized that there was no explanation for the united states it's in his first inaugural address there is no explanation unless you see this as an act of divine will America is simply too illogical. As, as we were talking about before, um, Walter McDougall, who, again, I, I go back to because he's a secular historian, but he, comes, he ends up at a very religious place. He says, if you took a, a time traveler uh, from the year 1500 
and you brought him into the current day. And this time traveler, through some miracle, there are lots of things that he would recognize. Uh, France would be this haughty civilization that considered itself superior to everything else. Well, that's still there. You would have an Arab world and an Islamic world that uh, also had all kinds of religious imperatives saying they were the final seal of revelation, yet they were busy killing each other. Uh, a Chinese viewpoint, etc., etc. You could look all around the world. There'd be things that would be recognizable. The one thing that this time traveler from 1500 would not recognize in the world is the United States in North America, which was sparsely settled. Uh, North America, South America had civilizations. North America had tribes. And I'm sorry, none of those tribes built uh, major cities, or at least major cities that lasted until 1500. And uh, the idea that you would have one country in America that, that was fed by streams from every continent and every nationality coming to this country and embracing its ideals, and this one country would dominate the world militarily, economically, politically, culturally, that would be utterly unforeseen. Uh, George Washington speaks in his very first inaugural address in uh, 1789. He speaks of the invisible hand that, has, uh, that guides the affairs of men. And one of the quotes that, that I love, and I, I, I know you're aware of it, Alice, is Otto von Bismarck, the Iron Chancellor of Germany. Absolutely. said uh, said uh, that uh, it is the job of the statesman to listen for God's footsteps in history. And then when you hear them, you grab his coattails and hang on. You have to go ahead and say what he said about the United States, though. <laughs> of course, in a, in a separate quote two years uh, before, he said, uh, God has a special protection uh, for lost dogs, uh, idiots, drunkards, small children, and the United States of America. Absolutely. And uh, uh, and by the way, I love both of those quotes from Bismarck, and I love the fact you put both of them in your book. And, uh, you know, it, and Bismarck was perhaps the first non-English-speaking European uh, to make clear that uh, the new order of the ages is, uh, is going to mean that every major civilizational fact now has to run through the United States of America. It, it, it has to deal with the United States of America. Even Bismarck unifying Germany uh, understood that, uh, that even German unification uh, was within the context of a world in which Germany would not be the supreme power on the planet, but hoped to be the supreme power in Europe. That it, it had already reshifted European expectations to that extent. Um, that's a remarkable thing. Very few Americans have a clue of that dimension of our history. Right. And, and again, it's one of the reasons that it's such a shame that they're striking the statue of Theodore Roosevelt uh, from the American Museum of Natural History. I, I find uh, it, Roosevelt was a historian um, on top of everything else. I'm sympathetic to him because he, he did not inherit great wealth, and the wealth that he did inherit he squandered on a failed ranch in That's right. uh, North Dakota. But he made his living as a writer. And he wrote 37 books. He wrote three books while he was president of the United States, which is fairly remarkable. You and I both know how hard it is to write books when we're not even president of the United States, though you're president of a major university. Um, but but T.R. Uh, writing about and his book, The Winning of the West, which yeah. is a three-volume series. Now, of course, it's, it's extremely politically incorrect, because he thinks it's actually a good thing that the United States exists. And again, one has to come to terms with that. People who talk about the crime of, of the United States against Native Americans and how hideous it was. Okay, so what's the alternative? What, what would have happened if the United States had not come into being? And through all of these seemingly random happy accidents... Uh, reached its current prosperity and power. Uh, if, 
if that had not happened, in what way would humanity, in what way would even the residents of North America have been better off? And it, that's an unanswerable question. It, it's a very difficult thing. And, and when you raise it just that way, it comes down to honesty, which is lacking in our historical imagination, which is the fact that uh, conservative patriots ought never to deny the horrors uh, that took place in the conquest of the uh, Native American peoples and, and the taking of their land. That, that we, we should never deny that. And, and if Amen. we were in charge now, uh, we would not allow uh, events to have unfolded as they did. But honesty compels us that no place in all of human history is it possible to say that vast tracts of uninhabited land claimed by uh, people X or Y uh, were allowed to remain so uh, w- without uh, the encroachments of civilization. And, and again, the professors who are making all these arguments about uh, some kind of uh, purity and utopianism before civilization arrived, they're all sitting in leather chairs in air-conditioned offices uh, making these arguments. Uh, th- th- there's just a basic dishonesty built in so much of this critique. It's dishonest to deny the evil. It's also dishonest to deny that one way or another, America was going to become a transcontinental nation. And if not the United States, then uh, the recent uh, uh, Oxford University uh, series on American history came out and said, if not the United States, then we would have had New Spain in the middle of the, uh, of, of the North American continent. And had not the uh, West Coast and your own home state uh, of Washington, then a part of Oregon. The question was, is that going to be a part of England or a part of the United States? Uh, there, there, was, there was no possibility that it was going to become nothing uh, in, in terms of a, a part or, of the map. Or, or some, some kind of huge nature preserve. Right. And that's, that's of course, the, the ultimate, and I know you've written and spoken about that, is people like Bill McKibben who suggest uh, how much better things would be if uh, New York City had never been established, if Manhattan had remained a uh, uh, an unsettled island. And this is not just anti-American; it's anti-human. Deeply, and deeply, and and again, if you do not believe that human beings are shaped in the image of our Creator, and that that there is a uh, uh, a, a will by that creator for human beings to partner in the work of creation and the work of perfecting and uplifting the world, uh, then then you're left with some of these ridiculous ideas that sit there. The, the one thing I, I, I wanted to mention is right now it's very current because as we're speaking, there are decided attempts by radicals to tear down a statue of Andrew Jackson uh, in Lafayette Park uh, right, right across from the White House. In fact, they've declared it the Black House Autonomous Zone. Uh, well, not so fast. Uh, the, the point about Andrew Jackson, and this is something I write about as a chapter in, in my first book about Providence, The American Miracle, uh, Divine Providence in the Rise of the Republic. On January 8, 1815, Jackson, and he was uniquely qualified to do this, and there are very few other military commanders in all of human history who could have achieved what he achieved in New Orleans. And that battle prevented the entire middle of the United States and the 15 states ranging from North Dakota and South Dakota right down through Iowa and Missouri and the rest of them right down to Louisiana. Those all could have been part of Canada. Because Pakenham, the, the British general who was the uh, son-in-law of the Duke of Wellington, uh, had come with a huge army, and his instructions, which have recently been dis- de- uh, declassified, they were declassified six years ago, uh, his instructions were to seize all of the territory of the Louisiana Purchase that America had purchased, Britain thought, illegally from France, and to take that territory and append it to Canada as part of British North America. Now, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm actually, uh, the, most of the time, glad that we have uh, Minnesota and North Dakota and South Dakota and, and the rest as part of the United States.
Well, absolutely, and and uh, th- that's an excellent way of making the point. The the, the history is just a question of choices uh, and of decisions and of actions. History could go one direction or the other. And uh, you point to so many dimensions of providence, but one I would point to is that if you were to go 100 years before the Battle of New Orleans, which you so well describe in your book, and by the way, you're just an outstanding writer. You, you, the, the, your, your narrative ability as a writer is just, just superb. Thank you. As you tell the story. But if you go 100 years before uh, that, uh, battle of what we call the the, uh, the the War of 1812, if you go back 100 years before, the question was whether one of three European empires would control that territory. The, the question was, will it be Britain or will it be France or will it be Spain? There was no idea that it could be anything other than those three European empires. By the time Jackson wins that victory, every one of those European empires has come to the conclusion that it has no future in the territory that would become the United States of America. I just have to say, as an historian, that is an amazing turn. In 100 years, the longest-lasting, most uh, uh, aggressive European empires all backed off of the United States and understood a new order was coming. And and by the way, another thing in, in, in the new book, God's Hand on America, which is just coming out in paperback in September, uh, in, in God's Hand on America, I tell the story about uh, Russian America. Absolutely. And they they didn't used to have the term Alaska, but there was Russian America. And Russian America, most people don't know, extended all the way down to Northern California. Uh, the Russians claimed all of that territory down to uh, Russian River, which is just a little bit north of San Francisco. And Again, it's uh, Alaska through the Bering Straits is relatively close to uh, Russia. I remember Sarah Palin uh, could could see it from Alaskan territory, not her home, but from Alaskan territory. But the the idea that America was able to uh, purchase Alaska was uh, well, that idea was based on the survival of William Henry Seward, who by all rights, absolutely should have died on the night of uh, April 15, 1865, when Lincoln was shot, because part of the conspiracy to kill Lincoln involved a very serious murder attempt on Seward, where Louis Payne broke into his house and stabbed him seven times. Now, here's the amazing story, is that nine days before that stabbing, uh, Seward had had a carriage accident, so he had a metal plate covering his throat uh, that was tied to his throat with canvas. And Payne, who was stabbing him, kept stabbing against the metal plate, not severing his jugular vein as he had intended. And uh, one thing on, on which uh, historians are unanimous, without Secretary Seward, it was Secretary of State of the United States, and his determination to add Russian America all of it, to uh, what he viewed as the American empire, that without Seward's survival, that doesn't happen. Absolutely. And the, and the whole idea of a carriage accident, a metal plate in exactly the right place, and Seward surviving this dire conspiracy that succeeded in taking Lincoln's life, I, I think is, uh, can only be viewed as Seward himself viewed it as providential. Absolutely. And this is the same Seward who very well could have become the Republican nominee for president uh, instead of Lincoln, and uh, who uh, no one actually thought in the beginning would uh, kind of resign himself to serving in Lincoln's cabinet, but he did. And uh, the two antagonists actually became uh, an incredible team together. And uh, so it's just, it's just, you, you just look at this and you know, I can the poets will call it the vicissitudes of human history. But thankfully, you're not just consigning it to vicissitudes. Uh, it, but but this is a sign that um, that there is a providential order to the universe, and that we can certainly see it here. Uh, in um, in Christian circles, uh, this has become an issue of controversy in history. You know, how do you tell the story of a George Whitfield? Uh, because uh, the the, uh, the a generation of younger evangelical historians emerged in the 1970s and 80s and beyond, 
and uh, l- largely trained by uh, Harry Stout at Yale, where uh, you went to both uh, undergraduate and to law school, uh, trying to say, okay, let's let's undo that providential understanding of history. Let's uh, let's just try to deal with someone like a George Whitfield uh, as a uh, as an individual on the 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 uh, the agenda of history, like any other. And uh, so, and and uh, Harry Stout wrote uh, actually a, a biography of Whitfield and. Uh, the problem with that biography is very interesting, but the problem is you have to ascribe everything to human action alone, and it, that's not enough to explain a George Whitfield. Uh, I, I, even even someone like uh, Hume didn't believe that was enough. Uh, David Hume, the skeptic, he didn't believe it was enough to explain a George Whitfield. Nor did a Benjamin Franklin, uh, again, not a believer. He didn't believe that human. Uh, factors alone could explain a George Whitfield. And you can't look at the United States of America and say human factors alone can, can explain this. You know, in your first volume, you begin with uh, what you call that glorious fourth, uh, the uh, fourth of July of 1826, when both Jefferson and Adams died. And uh, it, it just reminded me of something, uh, uh, as I was looking at this, both of them held to a a providential understanding of American history, and they lived it. They knew that other than divine providence, it could not have happened. No, no, that's entirely correct. Uh, just to back up for a moment, um, you mentioned George Whitfield. One of the one of the stories that I remember best uh, learning at at Yale was my professor of colonial history, whose name was Edmund S. Morgan, who was probably the greatest historian of, uh, of, of pre-revolutionary America ever. And Professor Morgan tells a story about Benjamin Franklin and George Whitfield. When Whitfield came to preach in Philadelphia, Franklin wanted to hear him, but he told his friends that, uh, look, I will not bring my purse with me, because apparently the reputation was that Whitfield, with the power of his preaching, so deeply moved people that even if they didn't want to, they they uh, gave up donations. And so Franklin told his friends, I'm going to hear uh, Whitfield, but I will not bring my purse. In any event, in, in the midst of uh, the preaching, apparently uh, Benjamin Franklin uh, moved to tears and crying abundantly reached in and took out a gold watch and donated that and uh <laughs> which i i think i think goes to uh, some of the seriousness with which Absolutely. franklin who was religiously unconventional he was religiously unconventional but the idea of providence uh he said at the constitutional convention when he was asking them to pray every day and I, this story is in the american miracle uh, Franklin said, uh, if a, a sparrow cannot fall without his notice, can an empire rise without his aid? And talking about God, of course. And, uh, and, and this basically is the point. When it comes to Jefferson and Franklin, this is one of the, the, the most amazing stories. And I remember being fascinated by this since I was a child, because... Uh, the 50th anniversary of the United States of America was July 4th, 1826. And uh, the founders and the early American leaders, being well-schooled in the Bible, saw that as a jubilee, as a yovel in Hebrew, which is part of a jubilee year. They inscribed on the Liberty Bell uh, the uh, proclaim liberty throughout the land and all the inhabitants thereof, a passage from Leviticus, that specifically recalled the idea of a jubilee year. So it was considered an amazing thing that the two people who were most responsible for the Declaration of Independence, uh, Thomas Jefferson, who wrote it, and John Adams, the second president of the United States, who fought for it, the Atlas of Independence in the Continental Congress, uh, those two people were still alive. And in fact, John Adams' son, John Quincy Adams, was providentially the president of the United States at the time. They were both too elderly and too ill. John Adams was 90, uh, and he was the first president until Hoover to have lived anywhere near that long. Now we have other presidents, uh, Jimmy Carter and President Reagan and President uh, George H.W. Bush, with with that kind of longevity. In any event... 
Adams and Jefferson um, lived to celebrate the Jubilee year, that 50th anniversary. But they, and they sent both of them letters and statements to celebrate, but they both remained at home. And when, when Adams died, it was on the evening of July 4th, just after the fireworks went off. He watched from the bedroom of his home. And then afterward, uh, he heard the cannonade of heaven, which was thunderstorms, and after the fireworks. And then after that, he passed. And uh, several eyewitnesses who were there in the room with him say his last words were, Liberty is safe, Jefferson still lives. And of course, in that era, he had no way of knowing that five hours before, on the same day, July 4th, 1826, the exact 50th anniversary of uh, their great handiwork, the Declaration of Independence, both men had died. And the odds against that happening are, are, have literally been calculated. In other words, Two presidents dying on the same day. We've never had that. Two and founding never. presidents. Yes, and two founding presidents, and that same day is July 4th, and it is the 50th July 4th, not just any July 4th. Daniel Webster gave a great memorial speech, which I quote abundantly, about how this was, and Daniel Webster is, again, another religious uh, nonconformist, but a great believer. And, and, and Webster uh, uh, gave this speech to a packed house in Boston about how this was the final imprimatur, the sign from heaven that our endeavors in forming this country were fulfilling a mandate of heaven. And that was unquestioned by Lincoln. Frankly, it was unquestioned by Franklin Roosevelt, for goodness sake. Absolutely. Or John Kennedy. Absolutely. And, and the, the idea that today, that notion that we are, we are a divine instrument, that, that is so casually disregarded by contemporary politicians, it seems to me a, a deep problem. History, wherever and however it is found in whatever format, oral, written, narrative, film, history is an argument. It always has been so. It will ever be so. One of the crucial issues is how the argument is made, but more than anything else, it's important for us to recognize whether or not the story is true. And what Michael Medved writes about in these two books is the story of American history understood with the necessary category of providence. That's a loaded term these days, but then again, as I said, history is a loaded term. So these are the kinds of books that should have our attention because they actually represent a form of historical courage to go where many others would dare not go. That's also what makes this conversation with my friend Michael Medved all the more interesting. I, w I want to take us to what, in my view, is the greatest demonstration of uh, the necessity of providence as a as a major worldview uh, understanding. And, and yet before going there, I just want to say I, I'm thrilled by uh, how the, the, the facts of history fall within the context of a story of history and how you tell that story is everything. And again, you tell these stories so well. Um, but I think it's beyond even what we just said here, because if you look at it another way, three of the first five presidents of the United States died on the 4th of July. <laughs> right. The third being And James. they're the only ones who have. Right. The no only one ones says. Uh, James Monroe died, I believe, on uh, July the 4th of 1831. So that's five years after that 50th 4th of July. And uh, just, just incredible. You have three presidents. And as you said, none thereafter. Uh, there's got to be some meaning there. Yes. And, and again, people recognized it at, at the time because it is such an extraordinary coincidence I, um, I actually quote a statistician, uh, did a paper on it, and he said uh, this would be the equivalent in poker of uh, drawing uh, a straight flush seven times in a row. 
<laughs> which, which if, if somebody draws a straight flush uh, seven times in a row, he's cheating. And, and that's the point, by the way. I think that's part of why people react to the United States the way they do. You either have say, okay, what is God doing here? And what does God expect of us in return for all of these blessings? Or you say, oh, they're cheating. They're cheaters. This, this can't possibly be. I, uh, I, I am in love with another coincidence, which has been very, very uh, dimly noted by most historians, which is that literally on the day through a, a tremendously providential uh, concatenation of circumstances that a government clerk named Nicholas Trist negotiated a treaty with Mexico, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which gave America control of California. Literally within uh, the same week, when of course news could not travel, no one could know it, they discovered gold in California. And it, had Mexico known, had the Mexican authorities known that California, which was Mexican territory, had this huge mother load of gold, which, by the way, played a gigantic role in America's economic power emerging in the 1850s and 60s. Absolutely. Because we had more gold than anybody else because of California and because of the discovery of gold literally hours after this treaty was actually it was hours before this treaty was signed, uh, but um, long before uh, anyone in Washington or in Mexico City had heard about the discovery. I, I want to take us to what, uh, as an historian and as a theologian, I, I find to be actually the deepest territory of uh, the consideration of divine providence, and uh, that's into this, the horrifying years of the Civil War and uh, the singular role of Abraham Lincoln, and not only his role, but his understanding of history. Uh, Elton Trueblood, who, uh, by the way, I wrote my honors thesis on uh, uh, Dr. Trueblood, who was uh, perhaps the most famous Quaker theologian of the 20th century. He, uh, he's, he wrote uh, a book about Abraham Lincoln entitled Abraham Lincoln, a Theologian of American Tragedy. And uh, mm. Dr. Trueblood helped me as a Quaker. By the way, he was a, his best friend was Herbert Hoover. He was a part of the formation wow. of the Hoover Institute. Um, but he, he helped, and Hoover was a Quaker, of course, uh, the, the Quaker president. Uh, he helped me to understand reading Lincoln, his letters and his speeches, particularly his speeches, particularly the second inaugural address, to understand that uh, Lincoln, who was, you've used the word unconventional. Let's just use that again. Lincoln's religious life was unconventional. But his understanding of providence is one of the deepest in the language he used and the arguments he made of any theological mind uh, of the modern age. It's, 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 it is to me still in heart and mind the toughest territory uh, of, uh, of American history. And uh, Lincoln's understanding of providence, because he understood it not only as God's uh, actions amongst humanity, amongst human beings, uh, but his moral action, that God's providence was moral, and that that moral providence was mixed. Uh, There was not absolute good or absolute evil on either side. And yet both sides in the Civil War would have absolutized their arguments to an idolatrous degree. And the Civil War was, as Lincoln understood, the great horrifying bloodletting of uh, of a moral crisis. But he firmly believed, even as, of course, he was going to die in just a matter of a very short amount of time after that second inaugural, he clearly believed that God was not finished with the United States and that this agony was not for nothing. No, that's entirely true. And and again, it was six weeks after the inaugural address that he died. I, I again, th- this this has been observed. Americans try to put this out of mind, but uh, uh, the Palm Sunday of 1865 was the day when when Lee surrendered to General Grant at Appomattox. That was a Palm Sunday. And then that Good Friday was the day that Lincoln was killed. 
And uh, the, the big question, and I think it's one of the biggest questions and challenges that pe- those of us who believe in divine providence need to answer, which is how could it be that this great and good man who was so much needed for the process of reconstruction and the trying to deliver the promises of liberty to three million freed slaves, how could he have been taken from the country by, uh, by a God who had America's benefit, long-term benefit in mind? And the fascinating thing is Lincoln, in the last five years of his life, uh, repeatedly referred to himself as an instrument of, of God. And uh, that idea of instrumentality, the, the Hebrew word and biblical word for angel is malach, which means a messenger. And the, the traditional Jewish understanding, biblical understanding, of what it means when God sends an angel is each angel has one mission. And Lincoln's mission, and he understood this, was to save the Union and to free the slaves. And he had accomplished both. And literally within days of the accomplishment of both, uh, he, he, was, he was taken from the scene. And, and people, what's fascinating is I went back and there are German theologians, German Lutherans in Pennsylvania, who were writing about this in precisely those terms in 1865 and understood that, that God was sending us a message to complete and continue the work of Abraham Lincoln, which we have been trying imperfectly to do for uh, the last 150 years. Yeah, as a theologian, I have to say, what makes Lincoln so fascinating to me, and uh, I read that, uh, that work by Elton Trueblood when I was probably 19 years old, and uh, since then have just been fascinated with, uh, with the mind and heart and soul of Lincoln. But Lincoln's understanding of providence in American history was different than anything I know before or since, in that he understood that God's providence is not only promise but judgment. And, uh, and so in that second inaugural address, he spoke about the providence of God, but he spoke about the judgment of God, that certain and sure judgment, altogether righteous, uh, that would be demonstrated in American history. And, and that's why I want to tell some conservatives who have a glib understanding of, 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 uh, of, of America and God's providence in America, assume that that just means God's blessing. No, it also means God's judgment, uh, a judgment that in one sense makes America all the more necessary but uh, but humbles this nation from the kind of idolatrous pretensions that have marked so many other empires. I'm preaching, Michael, forgive me. No, no, but I think that term, idolatrous uh, pretensions, is exactly right. And, uh, and again, Lincoln made it clear, and he was the first one to even dare to do that, that this terrible war that claimed 700,000 lives he made it clear in his second inaugural that he speculated that that would be a punishment for uh, centuries of of slavery and evil, and uh, he talked about it as if the for each uh, fall of the uh, of the lash on the bondsman on the slave yes. that uh, would be paid for with bloods. And then he said he quoted the Bible, he quoted scripture. He said that uh, but the judgments of uh, the Lord are true. Frederick Douglass, the great former slave, black abolitionist, uh, and great leader of the 19th century, um, apparently said right after the second inaugural address, that was the greatest sermon I've ever heard. Well, as a, as a Christian theologian, I have to say it was a sermon, and it's one that uh, it moves me every single time I read it, both because of the context in the foreground and in the context uh, after, including, as you said, his assassination six weeks later. Michael, I hope you'll allow me uh, to digress here just a bit. You've been a dear friend to me for a quarter century, and I'm very thankful for that friendship. And uh, we, we've had the opportunity to be on a phone call just about every Monday of our lives for a quarter century. And my life is much richer for it. I want you to know that. Uh, Thank you. And uh, in, in the context of that friendship, I know something about God's providence in your life. Uh, so uh, even as we, we, we have to close this conversation soon, I just want to say, I, I think about your life, where you were born, uh, 
the, the trajectory of your thinking from the time you were at Yale until you know now in the year 2020, I think about the fact that you were in the Ambassador Hotel when um, Robert F. Kennedy was assassinated. Uh, you, you, your own life marks uh, so many of the, the, the signs of providence. How do you feel about that? Well, I, obviously, I, I feel that it would be the most profound ingratitude, the most uh, ridiculous denial of the providential role in history uh, to, to deny it. Uh, and two things that I want to mention is um, all my, all my uh, four grandparents were immigrants to this country. And the circumstances of uh, my grandmother coming to this country are particularly uh, astonishing to me. Uh, she was the uh, she was the mother of uh, six children, and uh, her husband, my grandfather uh, Harry Medved, um, came to the United States in 1910 to try to earn enough money for passage across the ocean for his wife, his six children, and his father-in-law, because um, my great-grandfather, Beryl. And uh, <laughs> he finally sent the money back in 1914. My grandmother uh, came with all the six kids and her elderly father, and they were riding in the train, and they were going to Bremen, which is where you got, and from Ukraine, which is where they lived in great, great poverty, horrible poverty. My, my grandfather was a barrel maker and never, ever in his life made a living. But in any event, when they got to the border of uh, Austria-Hungary and Russia, they were stopped and taken off the train. World War I had broken out. And it was August of 1914, and they had to go all the way back to their village, Machnevka, in Ukraine. And the, the amazing thing here is that during the 10 years that followed, because they had World War I, they had revolution, which was bloody, and then they had the Russian Civil War, there was no chance for my grandmother to reunite with her husband, who was in Philadelphia, uh, waiting, writing, trying to get news. During that time period, five of her six children died. And they died of starvation. They died of disease. Uh, most people don't know this, but before the Holocaust, there were 350,000 Jews, at least, who died in Ukraine, civilians, because of the hardships of war, including... My aunts, uh, these, these five daughters that my, my grandmother had, she eventually made it to the United States with her only son, my uncle Moshe, and then reunited with my grandfather. And again, this is family lore, but I actually went back and looked at the ancestry of the birth records, and it's all true. Um, she was 49 when she reunite, reunited with my, my grandfather. And it was tearful, and it was 1924, and she was thrilled. And shortly after she got back to America, she got terribly ill and uh, couldn't keep her food down and had pain. And, and she was told by her neighbors in South Philadelphia that, uh-oh, this is probably a tumor. She, being an old country woman with, with no education, uh, she was very reluctant to see a doctor. She finally went to see a, a distant relative, uh, Dr. Isaac Moldauer. And uh, she was examined, and then he said, sit down, sit down. And he says, I have something very important to tell you. So she starts crying. She says, I know, I have a tumor. I have a tumor, right? He says, no, you have a baby. And she said, it's impossible. I'm 49 years old. I'm not in the way of women. And uh, then the doctor says to her, your name is Sarah, isn't it? <laughs> and it was. And that little miracle baby was my dad, David Medved. And, and again, his, his father was 50 when he was born. Now, this is America, land of new life. And the, the idea that my dad could go from the son of a barrel maker who had never attended school of any kind 
And my father won the mayor's scholarship and went to Philadelphia public schools. Didn't speak English, by the way, till he was about six. They spoke Yiddish. My dad went on to University of Pennsylvania and two master's degrees and a Ph.D. in physics. And to my father's amazing career. This is why uh, the prov- providential thing is... Um, is personal to me. And my late father, uh, basically, even when I was a little kid and before my father was religious at all, he was religious about America. He took me to Independence Hall, pointed to the Liberty Bell and the biblical words on it. And, and, uh, and, and later in life, my dad spent the last 19 years of his life in Jerusalem, uh, both teaching physics and studying Torah. And uh, this, this nation and the blessings that we all enjoy, they're so completely illogical, like this idea of a, a, a woman separated from her husband for 10 years, losing five children in Eastern Europe, and then coming to America and having this miracle baby, who ends up, by the way, one of my, my father's proudest achievements when he was young, was when he invested $3,000 and bought a, uh, a little row house for my, my grandparents, first home they'd actually ever owned. And I, this, this is uh, full of amazements, which are very, very personal. And I could go on, but I, again, I think one of the things that, that people of faith should do is to try to recognize the, the moments the turning points in our own lives where, where God clearly shows uh, not just his beneficence, not just his generosity, but his purpose, and try to recognize it. Michael, thank you so much for sharing that. Um, and uh, I'm so thankful that you have written these books. And by the way, I want all the listeners to, uh, to read these books. I, I wanted to have this conversation even in the beginning of the summer of 2020, because I, I think summer's a great time for a lot of listeners to this program to get both of these books, The American Miracle and uh, God's Hand on America. Uh, you'll find them absolutely fascinating any time of the year, but I think particularly in this uh, summer season may be very encouraging to you, even with the 4th of July you know, coming up, and uh, it'll mean something new to you. But uh, more than that, uh, it has been one of the great privileges of my life to know Michael Medved, his friend, and in God's providence in both of our lives, I'm thankful that uh, for a quarter century, uh, we've known one another as friends. So, Michael, God bless you. Thank you for taking this time to be with us for Thinking in Public. Thank you, and thank you for blessing me with your friendship, your example, and your, and I, I dare to say the word, wisdom. Uh, because that's a word that's sort of in a bad light right now, but it has been a consistent contribution from Dr. Al Mohler to my life and to the life of the country. I really enjoyed that conversation with Michael Medved. You know, here's one of the issues that comes to my mind. The issue of gratitude came up again and again and again, and for that, I'm grateful. It's good to be reminded of just how appropriate it is to express gratitude. But it's not only appropriate, it's actually a matter of a moral imperative. I appreciated so much how Michael Medved traced the story not only on the big canvas of the national scene over against the history of the larger world, but in the history of his own family. The sense of gratitude is something that is missing from so many in the current generation, and particularly as it is addressed to gratitude for this nation, for those who have paid such a high price in order that this nation might exist, for those who risk so much, and for those in successive generations who have helped to build this republic and this great experiment in ordered liberty. To love this nation and to be grateful for it has never meant to say that it is a perfect experiment. There is no such reality in a fallen world, but it is to say There is a particular gratitude we owe to this nation and to those who've come before and to all of those who populate this nation with us now and have the responsibility for building it into the future for generations yet to come. One central part of that gratitude so well illustrated by Michael Medved in these two books 
is telling the story and telling the story powerfully, telling the story truthfully, telling the story well. If you enjoyed today's episode of Thinking in Public, you'll be glad to find more than 100 of these conversations at albertmuller.com under the tab Thinking in Public. For more information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Moeller.